0: The business of culture, the culture of business, markets, media and technology, entrepreneurs, authors, much more. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad.
1: I did experience living out in a garage at a point and I did store my food in a a shoe box for various reasons and different instabilities. You know, growing up with my parents, that was the end result. I think the biggest challenge was just navigating through different Houses, never having a real place called home to me. It was always just the next house, you know, the next school, the next neighborhood, the next community. And so I never really felt like I fit in. That was the biggest challenge I had to overcome as a child.
0: Here with the story of how one Minnesota teen overcame a life of housing instability and poverty to catapult himself to college and now med school. Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon & Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at link fulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate, and recommend us. A shout out to our broadcast partners, WVTF, Virginia Public Radio across the Commonwealth, WERA in Northern Virginia and much of Washington, D.C., WPVM in Asheville, North Carolina, and KPPQ out in Ventura, California. Holler if you too would like Full Disclosure on your air. Joining me is Michael Kelly. He's a medical student, class of 2025 at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. You may have heard his story on LinkedIn, where he had a viral post, uh, what was it, in 2020, I mean, during the thick of the pandemic. Eight years ago, I was living in a cold garage, eating food out of a shoebox. Seven years ago, I was placed in foster care. Six years ago, I was searching for stability and acceptance in a new home and school. If I take you to The day that you graduated with honors from St. John's University as its first neuroscience major and a first-generation college student. But most importantly, I'm graduating with a family of nearly 1,000 classmates and finally, a place I can call home.
1: How are you, sir? I'm doing great, Robin. Thanks for having me.
0: That caught everybody's eyes, and it got hundreds of thousands of likes. It sure uh, did. More than 31,000 comments. Uh, Tell me what was going through your mind when you posted it. I guess it was overwhelming gratitude, and you took it to LinkedIn.
1: Right. I was very excited that I graduated college. It's always been a dream of mine to make that an accomplishment. and I posted it at 1 a.m. one night, and even though I had my phone charging on the nightstand, I woke up and it was barely charged because of the amount of notifications I got. I had phone calls, I had emails, I had LinkedIn notifications. My phone was glitching. It, it was very unexpected. It was not something I intended to happen. I was just grateful. And, you know, LinkedIn's a place to share your accomplishments professionally. And that was what I did. I thought I just shared, you know, a common thing that many students do across the United States. And for some reason, my story hit it off.
0: Michael, now you are are not even 25 yet, I understand. Correct.
1: I'm 24 years old.
0: So it says in your bio, you graduated from St. John's University, where it says a Duluth Minnesota East High School graduate, Michael Kelly, was placed in foster care at age 15 and ended up being shuttled through three different homes during the course of his high school years. I want you to take me back, if you can, to when you first experienced um, this kind of Maslowian volatility. You didn't have security. You didn't have comfort. You didn't have a place to call home. I can't imagine somebody being shuttled in and out of foster care in the already trying high school years.
1: Right. Well, I had it a lot better off than a lot of other foster youth out there. There's foster youth that jumped through 30 plus homes. Uh, For me, it wasn't quite that many um you know, at the age of fifteen, I was placed into the foster care system. I was placed with my uncle and aunt, very fortunate, but I was separated from my sisters, who did experience mm-hmm. fifteen plus foster homes apiece, um, which is just unreal. Um, and before attending college, I'd moved over fifteen times and attended five different schools due to different instabilities in my life. Um, and I remember i I remember the day that I was put into foster care. you know, the guardian at uh came to my school uh, to inform me that I would not be going home that night but instead entering foster care. And then at that time, the odds of becoming homeless significantly increased. And then by the age of 18, I was homeless, you know, trying to navigate the summer before college. And then all throughout college, I never had a place to really call home other than St. John's and all the extracurriculars they involved me with that provided housing, fooding during breaks and such.
0: How did this happen? How did you, I mean, when did volatility break? You talked about your sister. I mean, going back to elementary school, I can't imagine. Um, You know, we, we, we talk about the various things you need, a breakfast, a uh, comfortable home, security, the other things to be able to attend to the higher order priorities of arithmetic, reading, science projects, and the like. When did you first experience that rupture? Your parents got divorced when you were seven. And so there was you and your sister. How many siblings?
1: I have a twin sister and a younger sister.
0: So you were a first grader when you learned of this divorce?
1: Yeah, I think I was in first grade, if not second grade. Um, I was quite young, and it was traumatizing. I I remember I had to stay with my grandparents. I was separated from my sisters at that point. I lived with my father at at his mom's house, and my sisters lived with my mother at her mom's house. And, you know, ever since that point in time, things just became very disjointed, and uh, we never knew when we were going to be together, who we were going to be with. You know, there was mutual custody, but it, it was always changing.
0: Michael, do you recall hunger or food insecurity or clothing or these other things as a young child?
1: You know, I, I did grow up in a lower socioeconomic status, but I did not experience the need for or the loss of um, clothing or lack of food necessarily. But I did experience living up in a, in a garage at a point, and I did store my sh- my food in a, a shoebox for various reasons and different instabilities you know, growing up with my parents, that was the end result. Um, I think the biggest challenge was just navigating through different houses, never having a real place called home to me. It was always just the next house, you know, the next school, the next neighborhood, the next community. And so I never really felt like I fit in. That was the biggest challenge I had to overcome as a child.
0: So what were the societal interventions? I mean, school is some degree of a safety net. Child services is a safety net. I mean, you have to have some sort of red flag at school for someone to be able to swoop in and assess the situation.
1: You know, believe it or not, I think it went on for way too long. My parents divorced at age seven. I was put into foster care at age 15. There was eight years of dysfunction during that time. Unfortunately, the dysfunction continued into foster care. But that, that eight years for potential intervention... You know, I, I I think should have been a smaller gap of time. There was I had therapists, I had family counselors that talked to us as a family. I I talked to counselors at school, but there was never that step taken to really put me into foster care and outside of the dysfunction of my my parents' homes. Um, and and so there there were supports, but the supports did everything other than what they were supposed to. They helped me continue on the road I was I was heading on with my with my family and just trying to keep that family unit together. But sometimes that's not the right answer. Sometimes you need to have a larger implementation into the the system, I guess. I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah well, Michael,
0: tell me about middle school and high school. I'm curious here because thinking back, and now that I see my contemporaries at reunions and various things and they admit to me that they were dealing with um, – uh, parental abuse or hunger at home that there were some fail safes for example I I had never realized uh for much of middle school how important the the breakfast the free breakfast program was for people who got there earlier who didn't have that first meal of the day I had never realized how important lunch shaming <laughs> lunch <laughs> shaming that happened behind the scenes just having by dint of two lines right one mm-hmm. free and reduced and one for the kids who were paying cash and then it being a spectacle especially if If there was a cashier having to cross off your name or you have to borrow money from a teacher or there were you've read about these things. Debts that students could potentially go hungry if their parents don't pay off their school lunch debt.
1: Right, right. Terrible things for sure. And I I was one of those kids that experienced that. I had the free lunches. And it was it was shameful to an extent. My friends knew about it. I couldn't explain it. It's just something I needed in order to eat. And I remember my place were, you know, filled three times as full as theirs. I would just have piles of bread with peanut butter on them to fill myself up because of how hungry I, I was at times. And, and it, it is shameful. It's like, how, how, do you, how do you navigate school as somebody that's different than your peers? And you can't explain it. You don't know why it's happening. It's just, it's what you know for life. And there is definite stigma in judgment. And I wish we could break those patterns of judgment, but it still exists today.
0: Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Michael Kelly. He's a medical school at the University of Minnesota, Twin Cities, anticipated graduation class of 2025. What's notable is that 10 years ago, he was in and out of foster care, and he was experiencing hunger and homelessness and borderline homelessness. And this is the story of how he found his voice and how he found purpose and hope. And uh one of the best comebacks on LinkedIn, I gotta tell you. Uh so let's start with that. What is if I'm sitting next to you at a wedding or a bar mitzvah, what is that one thing, that moment, that inflection, that pivot point, which I just, you know, I had the luxury of just hating high school point blank because it was full of angst and hormones and peer pressure and everything. You had all of these other hierarchy of needs stressors on top of that.
1: Right, right. Well, you know, I, at a point I realized when I I had to move between high schools and I had to go into a brand new community and experience a lot of those judgments and stigma that came from the new high school. And I just didn't feel like I fit in. And I I just-
0: In your LinkedIn post, in your very viral LinkedIn post of 2020, you posted- Six years ago, I was searching for stability and acceptance in a new home and school. Five years ago, I moved for the 16th time into my fifth school district. Four years ago, I was accepted into St. John's University with little social and cultural capital, but with great ambition to succeed. Tell me about your college process. How do you even get your head around college and having to maybe keep a job when you know you, you turn 16? And hustle through high school and be a a student learner and an earner and an applicant to college.
1: Right. It it was, you know, a huge challenge for me. I had my social workers that had me sit down, write out five applications to local colleges. I went to their favorite one, which was St. John's University. Very, very grateful I went there. Um, And I ended up going through the college experience, something that, only 10% of foster you would actually get to do, you know, only 3% of those 10 But wait, you got to walk me back to high
0: school. I mean, how did you pay attention to your grades? How did you, I mean, something as basic as fees for SATs or AP tests, right? Uh, fees for the college applications. And I imagine you had a job?
1: Mm-hmm. I worked as a cook in a restaurant. I also did gardening work and lawn care for my neighbors. Um. yeah, I worked. At- so what? What? walk me back. What was
0: a day like? What was a typical day as a 16 or 17-year-old like?
1: You know, um. after foster care, I, I decided, again, that I wanted a better life for myself. And so I, I thought the best outlet to do that was out of my foster home and in the school. So I joined the exec board. I became very involved in my school. I be, joined like 15 clubs in high school. And I would get there at 5, 6 in the morning. I wouldn't leave till 5, 6 at night come home. I'd either go to work or I, you know, study. And I just really thought that the best version of myself was to do the best I could in school. You know, back in elementary school, I was actually in special education. I was way behind in reading, way behind in math, and school is not a priority for me. And I, I thought, you know, that maybe school would be the outlet I needed to overcome this dysfunction. And so I just got super involved. You know, I met people. I I think it's, I always say it's half the test you take and half the hands you shake. And really the hands I shook and the people I met in high school really put me on a trajectory for a, a life of academic and a career in medicine, you know. They got me involved in hospital volunteerism, you know. Getting me involved in the community, making me feel like I was important.
0: Did you have to go from after school to the job?
1: Often I did. Often I did. Yeah, I would. Uh, <laughs> I had long days. I had very long days. Yeah, again, I would go to school at five or six in the morning. I'd come back, uh, eat a snack, go to work, come back. You know, 10 p.m. at night, study, do the same thing the next day. Weekends. Now, would
0: you avail yourself of school lunches?
1: You know, I I would just fill up with school lunches. Again, I had the privilege of having the paid. What are they called? <laughs> um, free and free, reduced lunch. Free, yeah, free reduced lunches, and that's what got me through the day. I would just eat, 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 and then have a snack when I got home to my foster home and continue on. Luckily, I worked as a cook, so I could snag snag a few fries here and there, <laughs> uh, and that's what got me through.
0: I'm going to pause you on this, but when does mental I mean, we talk about mental health now belatedly and the depressed teen and everything. Where I Just this overwhelming resolve you had to get out of the system and to break through the system. There was nobody at school that you could flag down and say, I need help. You know, a counselor I, I'll say it was a first world problem to have. Mrs. Lickstein, my influential high school counselor at North Might Beach High, might be listening to this episode. I accosted her in the 10th grade when high school started and said, I want to get into these colleges. Uh, I was that secure in everything else that I could focus like a hawk in 10th grade on the process of college. You, I mean, I'm thinking about high school. I'm thinking about college. I'm thinking about grad school. There seemed to have advertised always that there were resources for students in need. Were they there for you and were you encouraged to seek them out or did anybody seek this out on you?
1: Right. They were there. Luckily, at Duluth East, I did have... Uh, the resources necessary to me. There was a career center. I had teachers that knew of my background and wanted what was best for me, and they directed me to the career center. And, you know, I followed through on all the things that were necessary to get me to college. You know, they could see how interested I was in school. Once once I was able to focus on school, they saw how interested I was on it, and they helped me get to the next level, which was college. Uh, those resources were substantial, and they they really did get me where I am today and I relied on them. Unfortunately, a lot of students don't know what they don't know. And if they don't make those connections with teachers, they don't end up on the same path as me where you know they end up in college or medical school, that is.
0: Uh, let me understand this. You kept the 4.0 GPA in high school?
1: I did. Yeah. So my first year, my freshman year of high school, that was the when I was 15, right uh, in my transition of foster care, I did not have a 4.0. I was focusing on other things beyond school at that point. But once I was put into foster care, that's when I honed in. I, I said, I'm going to make a better life for myself, and I'm going to focus on school because that was, again, the outlet I thought I needed to pursue in order to have a better life for myself. And once I was put in foster care, brought to Duluth East, I had a 4.0 throughout high school, and that's what got me into college.
0: Now, uh, in in writing about you, your medical school right now, the University of Minnesota, discussed that at the age of 15, you were placed in the foster care system, as you described. But before attending college, you'd moved approximately 16 times and attended five different schools Mm -hmm. due to instability in your life. You had really righted the ship. I mean, what what a terrifying time to do it between the ages of 15 and 18 and maintain a perfect GPA after that transition year. But let me ask you, how did you get your mind around the idea of affording college or or financing yourself? I mean, you were barely keeping a job in addition to school. Uh, You'd have to overwhelmingly depend on financial aid. Talk to me
1: about that. Right. Yeah, especially going to St. John's, a private uh, university. I I was terrified for the cost. Um, I, I just remember sitting down and applying to what seemed thousands of applications for scholarships. And luckily, I got a few of them. I met with uh, uh, Tom Voller, who is uh, a representative of St. John's, who said, you know what, I'm going to do what I can for you to get you into St. John's. And he was able to secure me a really great St. John's scholarship that basically got me through St. John's for completely free. Now, again, this isn't a privilege that many foster youth have, and I know this very much so. Um, And so in late June of 2021, Minnesota passed the Fostering Higher Education Act, a bill that I like to say I helped pass. I I created a research project with foster advocates here in Minnesota that generated results that showed there was a huge need for for further funding for foster youth within Minnesota. And now beginning in fall of 2022, uh, the Minnesota law will enable Minnesota fosters to attend up to five years of higher education at an accredited of. Like public, private, or technical college or university with tuition, room, board, food fully covered—something that I, I couldn't dream of, you know, five years ago. But now it exists, and I'm just—this is something that is very unique. This is the only bill of its kind in the country. This is something I think every state in the United States should have.
0: I want you to tell me about graduation. You know, you're going off gloriously. It's a, it's, a, it's really a spectacular three-year turnaround for go to go from you know the final stint in foster care to potential homelessness, to you're going to be out of the system by age 18, but you're propelled into St. John's University.
1: Right. Yeah. Graduation was a very sad time for me. It was in the transition between foster homes. I was living with my grandma at at the time. And I remember walking across the high school stage during graduation and not seeing anyone I knew in the the crowd. And it, it made me very sad. It made me feel like my family members didn't care about my graduation. The fact that I would be attending college in fall that next year or that same year. And it was a very emotional experience. And then I was extremely anxious when I went to St. John's. I was a first generation student i i didn't know anything about college i had no idea what it meant to be a well college- were you
0: still were you still in touch with your siblings by the time you were i mean i don't understand what 18 even means is it sort of emancipation for better or for worse you're on your own you're out of the foster system what happens for some, what happens to the median foster lifetime child
1: right right for some um yeah, that that's it, you know. They're on their own. Uh some But what uh, does that mean?
0: What does that mean? I'm fos I'm in and out of the foster system and there're various interventions at the school. You, you if you're not a dropout, if uh, I I guess, you know, you haven't gotten in too much trouble is it just like an open uh uh what is it called that right after the toll booth where all the lanes are open and you ha- kind of have to pick one is it just this amorphous opening i i've always wondered especially in reading your case mhm yeah there's
1: a few options that fosters have you know it's one you you transition into an independent care you can continue foster care until 21 that's the route i took you can opt out of the foster um system and you can just start living your life without, you know, the foster agency helping facilitate the next 3 years of your life financially or academically or work related. There's certain requirements that one has to complete whether that's, you know, work, schooling or other requirements to stay within the foster care system, but unfortunately s- some people just kind of weed out of the foster care system without you know, just but kind of, the state. The state has
0: no obligation. The state, I mean, Washington and and you know, Washington D.C. and Minnesota have no obligation to kind of send you off with a book of you know, they used to call them food stamps or a block grant of some sort or some housing stipend. You're essentially on your own.
1: You know, I, I think there are social workers and a system out there to help as many foster youth as possible, but it takes the desire and yeah, the desire of the foster to actually go through with this plan to help weed them off of the. Uh, resources that the foster care system provides and into a normal functioning adulthood. Uh, so it's, it's for lack of better words, it's up to the youth at that time to make that decision, which is, you know, you're 18 years old. You don't know <laughs> what next week's going to be like. How are you going to make a decision to continue with a foster care agency that may have failed you, may have helped you succeed uh, somewhere in between and, you know, either stick with them or not continue in the foster care system going forward?
0: Uh, what are some other, you know, before we get to college, I want to get to some other islands of stability in your adolescence, resources that you could count on. You talk about extending the school day for as long as possible. Were there specific teachers? Were there counselors? Were there outside institutions, civic organizations?
1: Yeah, there's two teachers uh, that I have in mind of that were in high school that really helped me continue to be the best version of myself within high school. And that was Mrs. LaFontaine and Mr. Rudolph. They were Definitely two of my top cheerleaders, um, academically, professionally, and personally. Uh, without them, I you know, probably wouldn't be in college. It was also the social workers that I had and different Lutheran social services peoples that helped me along. I, I didn't go through this completely alone, though at times it may have felt alone. I had a whole army behind me trying to get me on the right path in life to help me become the person I wanted to become.
0: Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Michael Kelly. He's a medical student at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities class of 2025. The amazing thing is, uh, less than a decade ago, he was in the foster system, in and out of the foster system, and approaching homelessness. This is his story of finding his voice, finding his self, and turning it around, the unlikely story. Please stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at link FullDRadio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend this podcast to your friends and family. We are, of course, on all social media channels, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, at handle FullDRadio. And as always, my DMs are open for you. If you're just joining us, we're talking to Michael Kelly. He's a medical student at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities class of 2025, just 10 years removed from the foster system, in and out of the foster system for much of his teenage years, and even skirted with homelessness. Tell me about that.
1: Right, yeah. Well, homelessness really hit me when I when I went to St. John's University. I didn't have a place to call mine. I didn't have a room. I didn't have a bed. I just had to find opportunities to allow me to... Eat during winter break, for example, or spring break, or housing during those times. And, you know, I think a lot of those experiences and a lot of those opportunities that I found, for example, doing mission work or service work in Central America, those helped me decide that I wanted to go into medicine.
0: You got a full scholarship to St. John's? I mean, wh- wh- where was your head when you got that envelope or the reaction? Was it spring of, of uh, you know, your senior year?
1: Yes. I was just filled with joy. You know, I, I was able to tour St. John's University and I fell in love with it right away. Um, I, I enjoyed the whole experience of St. John's. And when I was able to open that letter, I, I, I remember I sat down with the representative, Tom Voller. He brought me out to dinner when he presented this great news. And I was just, I, I couldn't believe it. Like somebody like me, like a foster child, I'm getting, a you know, basically a full ride to St. John's University. That was something I would have never dreamed of.
0: So what was St. John's like? Talk to me about
1: freshman week, moving in. Oh, my gosh. I was I was full of anxiety. I had no idea what to expect. I didn't feel like I was having the imposter syndrome. I, I didn't feel like I, I belonged. But luckily, St. John's University offered an opportunity called College Bound that brings a, about 100 freshmen up to the, the boundary waters between Minnesota and Canada. And we get a camp and we get a fish and we get to meet each other before actual college begins and that's something I love. I love the outdoors. I love fishing, I love hunting, I love hiking, camping, all that. so I just felt in my in my environment I was really able to for the first time ever just be myself and be around people that were my own age, they didn't know anything about my past, and I was in total control for the first time ever, just being able to present myself in a in a manner that I wanted who I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to be you know a college student i wanted to be someone that didn't grow up in foster care i wanted to be someone that people didn't judge or have stigma about you know
0: so what of the equalizing efforts i mean i went to a private university and i remember plus or minus i mean we're put in the same dorms you have to get the same meal plans you do see some people have cars and nicer duds and go skiing you know in between uh semesters and certain trappings of wealth but there are uh leveling tendencies and equalizing tendencies in college, for better or for worse.
1: Yeah, we all live in a dorm. Uh, We were all required to live on campus the first couple years. Yeah, maybe you had a fancier futon than your friends, or maybe you had a better comforter, but all in all, you, you didn't really have much to go off. Maybe the car situation, yeah, but You know, unless you're driving your friends around, they don't really know your socioeconomic status, your cultural and social capital.
0: Yeah. So there's almost this anonymizing thing. And I wonder when you were able to be open and vulnerable with your classmates, when you felt like you had enough agency and you didn't, you know, the imposter syndrome maybe dissipated a bit for you to share with other people and maybe own it and be proud of it.
1: Right. Once I realized that my background brought me to where I am today and I shouldn't be necessarily ashamed of it. I was able to freely speak about it. And that was probably within the first month or two. I realized that everyone's there to grow. Everyone's there to to learn. And it it was just a different feel. High school can be very clicky. And college was very much so just a group of good people that wanted to, you know, meet new people and develop academically and professionally. And I I just, I owned up to it. I I just, and, and people saw my, my confidence in it and they didn't necessarily judge me more. They you know, I was in college. It wasn't like I was a high school dropout. It wasn't like I was on the streets begging for money at that point. I was right there al- alongside them in class, doing my best to be, you know, the best student possible. And I, I think that provided enough confidence for me to start talking about my story with my friends.
0: And again, I want to read from that super viral LinkedIn post. Two years ago, you wrote back in 2020, right? I pioneered through St. John's as its first neuroscience major. I traveled to the Dominican Republic for mission work and led a research project at the local emergency department, guiding 30 students through clinical research. One year ago, you wrote back then, I reached 1,500 hours of volunteerism, was awarded St. John's Man of Extraordinary Service, traveled to Costa Rica for medical mission work, and volunteered my summer to research Alzheimer's. Today, you wrote proudly with your cap and gown, I graduate with honors from St. John's University as its first neuroscience major and a first-generation college student. Did you apply to med school straight out of St. John's?
1: I did not. I didn't feel like I was prepared yet. I, uh, Imposter syndrome set right back in. Um, I, I took the MCAT. I took all the prerequisites to get into medical school. I did plenty of volunteering. I had a lot of lots of exposure. I knew I wanted to go into medicine at that point, but I just wasn't ready yet. I just needed time to make sure that was the direction I wanted to take. You know, I, I wanted to go into a career that allowed me to be the Uh, the best version of myself and create the biggest impact I can in communities. And I thought, you know, either that medical school was probably the right option for me. So I, I took a year off. I was a cancer research coordinator. I wrote my personal statements. I completed all the applications for medical school, got the letters of recommendation, and I applied. I just did it. I, I said, I'm going to do it. We'll see what happens. As soon as I hit submit, I just felt a, a huge sense of relief. I, I knew I did it. I was in the process. I was, you know, in the runs to maybe get accepted to medical school. And then I just had to wait. You had to wait for the secondary applications. And then you had to wait for the interviews. And, you know, I think by last year, 2021, um, winter of 2021, I got into my first medical school. I got into Des Moines, uh University. It's a with school. And I, w- I was going to medical school. I was so excited. And then the next interview came in and I got into that school. And then the next interview came and I got into that school and I was just, I couldn't believe it. I, you know, I had very average stats. I did not have a high MCAT score. I, I thought I was not going to get into medical school. And I ended up getting accepted to something like 10 medical schools. Let me
0: ask you, when you talked, did anybody debrief with you and say that they maybe you flew off the charts, you tested off the charts for something that's not tested for typically, whether it's the MCAT or organic chemistry or your college GPA, but that there's a certain grit and a a drive that you had to U-turn the way that you did that clearly appealed to med
1: schools? You know, I I think it was passion. I I, I think it was the drive I had and that you can't fake that in in my interviews. All you have to do is get the interview. If you have passion, if you have drive, they're going to see that. They're going to want you on the team. They want you in the class. I I wanted to help people so much. And I, I wanted to provide my diverse perspective on life in the medical field. You know, I grew up in foster care. I grew up in poverty. I was homeless to an extent. There's not too many doctors that can say they've went through a similar experience. And I want to be able to uplift and empower patients that might have similar adversities or struggles that I went through as a a kid.
0: Now, knowing what you know now, and I guess you'll be approaching solvency at some point past medical school, do you have academic debt? I do
1: now. (laughs) (laughs) Medical school
0: is- I, yeah. it, is it is it not scaring you? I mean, with your relationship with money and poverty as an adolescent, I mean, are you? I, I guess you have to be super bold to say this is what you have to go through in residency and debt and 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 being in
1: the system. It's absolutely terrorizing, Robin. I, I I'm so scared because of how expensive medical school is. I did not get a full ride to medical school. I am taking out probably forty thousand dollars a year to pay for medical school, and it's super scary. I haven't been in debt, but I've experienced poverty. I've experienced having very low income and just I, I just know I have to keep going. Now I have to keep going because, you know, I have this giant debt behind me. Um I'm constantly applying for scholarships, though there aren't that many for medical school, and I just have to live with the debt I have at this point and continue forward.
0: Michael Kelly, in the couple minutes I have left with you, uh spin this forward. Where do you see yourself in ten years? And what kind of interventions do you recommend for people who are in your shoes at age 15? Obviously, you're an extraordinary story.
1: Right. Yeah. So in 10 years, I hope to be probably a family doctor, something in primary care. I'd love to eventually go into administration, be a leader in a hospital system. And I just want to make interventions and implement different programs with my community. I want to be involved in my community outside of a career in medicine. For example, I started this new MD-Link organization. It's a new nonprofit organization within medical school, and I hope to continue to develop that. It's, it's a program that aims to provide early intervention for vulnerable youth and communities, such of those as like, exper- those youth that are experiencing homelessness or foster care, sex trafficking, and those who are victims of the juvenile justice system these are all passions of mine to help uplift and empower these youth and i can i hope in 10 years that i this this program continues other programs are developed and i'm able to actually make that meaningful impact in my community that i hope to have
0: michael kelly med school student at the university of minnesota class of 2025 anticipated again the viral linkedin post from 2020 begins 8 years ago i was living in a cold garage eating food out of a shoebox he got a full ride to st john's and he's halfway through med school sir uh please stay in touch and keep us posted on your journey i'm sure our listeners are going to be fascinated
1: absolutely can i give a word of advice to some fellow fosters of course well my advice to further fosters or those who feel alone or challenged daily is to know this You can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start exactly where you are, no matter where that is, and change the ending. Know that many of us are not dealt with the right cards, but that's okay because I want people to know that it's not about the cards you're dealt, but how you play the hand. So keep your head up, believe in yourself, and continue to aim to be the best version of yourself. Because if a foster child who lived in a garage and ate out of a shoebox can do it, you can do it too. Thanks, Robin.
0: Michael Kelly, medical student at the University of Minnesota, Twin Cities, Class of 2025. Ten years ago, as you said, living in a garage, eating cold food out of a shoebox. Uh, Sir, congratulations, and please keep us posted on your journey.
1: Thank you, Robin.
0: Full disclosure, stay with us. If you are just joining us, we were talking to med school student Michael Kelly about overcoming poverty in a broken foster system to find purpose, stability, and community in higher education. Which reminded me of my 2018 chat with Adele McClure, who entered college hungry, having endured a childhood of homelessness. Not only did she become student body president at VCU. Joining me in studio, Adele McClure, who has traversed an impoverished childhood across many states to break out as a student body leader at Virginia Commonwealth University. How are you, Adele?
2: I'm doing well, Robin. Thank you so much. I'm thanking
0: you for showing up on such short notice. I mean, I heard about you. I I read about you in a school post. And I cannot believe in that doing more research, I mean, how many more grades of adversity there were in doing this. I mean, your mother had stability. it It was passed down to you. You knew hunger. You knew illness that required you to lean on Medicaid. Take me back to where this story begins, where you first recall adversity, where you kind of had to grow up as a child.
2: I think uh, as far back as I can remember in Yuma, Arizona, which was a pretty destitute area, um, not many opportunities for growth. And uh, I do remember only having a few items in the refrigerator at all times, and you know i would I would walk into you know friends' homes, and they would have entire <laughs> refrigerators of food. And uh, I knew that we were in a in a bad position when I asked one of my friends, uh, and I think I was about six. I asked them if they can bring me the receipt from their mother's grocery run, and then I went down the receipt and asked them if they wouldn't mind sharing. I circled on the receipt certain items, and they brought them out and shared them with my brother and I. And so it was that moment where. You know, I thought, well, I need to try to do as much as possible or anything to get fed because all we had was, you know, government. Well, you know, at the time they called it government cheese, but really we had butter. We had sugar, which was surprising. And then uh, I remember having tortillas and then some canned foods. So, you know, my sister, I always thought that it was a just an amazing thing to have oysters in a can. I thought that was the norm. And so my sister used to eat that with mustard. And then we used to rub some butter on the tortillas and roll them up. And that was dinner.
0: Now, your mother was very busy working as a single mother. I mean, you'll get into it later. You didn't know your father uh, until Mm -hmm. very recently. But when was this made apparent to you? Did she have to pull you aside and say, kids, you need to pull more than the typical share of, of childhood weight that we have it rough? Was there a kind of a a formal presentation she unfortunately had to make? <laughs>
2: uh, there There was no formal presentation. Uh, I feel like uh, she was so busy trying to take care of us and then also trying to work uh, over 40 hours in multiple jobs to, to pay the bills. Uh, so I don't think that she thought to sit us down and tell us what was happening. We just kind of saw it unfold before our eyes. And, and when we got that first eviction, or when we had the lights off, I mean, it was pretty apparent. So And she would just say, well, I don't have the money to pay for it. And so I would, you know, specifically in Virginia and Fairfax County, I would accompany her. My brother and I would accompany her to many of the different nonprofits, churches, you know, government offices to beg for someone to pay for our light bill or to give us food or pay for our rent that month or, or even just subsidize it so she can have some time to find some money to pay it off so we're not on the streets. So it was you know, pretty apparent. And that's when I thought to myself, you know what, I need to try to find a job as you know, quickly as possible. And, uh, you know, the job at nine, of course,
0: at the age of nine,
2: yeah, that that I didn't make money from that. I did do car washes at that age. But the job at nine is I went into the apartment complex uh, leasing office. And I said, hey, I know there are child labor laws. <laughs> so I know that I can't work for money, but could I work for cookies? And, uh, you know, maybe some of the trinkets that they had. And they agreed. So, you know, every single day I would go to – when I wasn't in school, maybe on the weekend, uh, and and when I got out of school, I would walk up to uh, the office and they'd hand me a stack of papers and tell me to put them on each of the apartment doors. And um, I felt like if I created this relationship with the apartment leasing office, maybe they're less likely to evict us. And then also, you know, I get paid in cookies, so – you know, that would curb my appetite for just a little bit.
0: When do you recall your first eviction? Were you in elementary school? Was it in the vicinity of that time? I mean, you knew about the present threat of eviction mm-hmm. to your mm-hmm. mother enough to go and seek a apprenticeship at the leasing office.
2: Mm-hmm. I, I, th- I think my mom told me that we received a notice, and then somehow she was able to come up with the money. But I didn't necessarily see the effects of it until later. And, um, you know, she's had an f- extremely tough life herself, and, and she's had to deal with series of evictions all of her life. And one eviction in particular spiraled out of control when she—or her life spiraled out of control uh, after that when she gave her cousin some money uh, to pay her bill. My mom got evicted and then ended up, you know, homeless and losing my brother and my sister to the foster care system and— and it just went downhill from there. So I feel like for my mom, it was it was very normal. Um, she well, she knew it wasn't normal, but it was a very normal occurrence to her. And um, so when she would break it to us, it wouldn't sound like uh, something very devastating. It just seemed like this is something that we could come back from. So she um, kind of instilled in us the fact that we need to get an education and we need to do well in school uh, in these you know free educational environments. And and that's what we did. We did our best and, and we worked hard in school, uh, even though it was a little difficult. Um, there was a, certainly an achievement gap with, with moving from school to school and then also thinking about what you're going to eat that night and how your mom's going to pay the bills and the rent.
0: One of the painful memories I have from elementary school, I just remember my father would dutifully send me off every morning with a Ziploc bag of uh, three quarters for school mm-hmm. lunch at Highland Oaks Elementary. And then, at, you know, adjusting for inflation, I think, I think it became a dollar. But the line was always held up. And I remember Rosie the cashier had to I, – I can't believe this and you must be very cognizant of it now and I'm curious what your experience was – wasn't lunch shaming kids, but it was getting kids to kind of swear that their parents paid that balance. They were constantly moving papers around at the front of the line and they'd make another line for free and reduced lunch. And I would have I would have imagined even then that if somebody couldn't afford lunch, certainly the public school system in this country would give them free and reduced lunch. In fact, there was a breakfast program. You would you would think, and then growing up, you know, taking sociology courses, being a taxpayer, that there'd be a safety net, that There'd be aid to families with dependent children, food stamps, SNAP, whatever you call it, emergency medical insurance for kids. How was that in practice, for example, with, with school lunch and the school safety net?
2: Um, I do remember receiving free and reduced lunch. I can't remember. I think at some point it was reduced, and then they had to move me to free lunch. And there was, in my mind, a separate line. And, and I think that the lunch ladies made it pretty apparent when, when it was free, um, because with the other kids in line, they would tell them the balance on the card, and then with me or other kids with free, free and reduced lunch, um, they just you know didn't tell us any kind of balance, and they just told us to move on. And but I was definitely thankful for that program because that was mainly the only time that I got to eat a real meal. And you know, my mom did cook when she could and when she had food stamps available to her, but you know, food stamps didn't cover the entire month, but. So that's why I was very thankful to the school programs. But another thing is if you were on free and reduced lunch, that didn't cover field trips. So it was also very apparent that you're a poor kid when you couldn't go take the trip to New York. Yeah. So a lot of people got uh, a lot of people at that age in elementary school got to experience leaving the area and going on a field trip with their peers. And then they would ask me why I'm not going to what seemed like the greatest trip of their lives at the time.
0: This actually breaks my heart in hindsight because I can think back to, uh, you know, there were kids we knew as latchkey kids and others who would come and uh, would really look forward to lunch or would be very, I just remember going back that they'd be, the ones in the free and reduced queue would, would eat lunch in a very mindful way. I mean, it was an important meal for them and some would get there early that were bussed in that would take would take breakfast as well. And I'm I'm mad at you know I guess you can't be mad at a, a you know an elementary school kid for being so naive about it I'm mad at the I'm mad at the culture that it has allowed kids to be shamed in a certain way I thought the shaming stops at clothing or the car that your mom and dad drop you off at. And it breaks my heart to think back on it that this was something that at an early age made like, made a person feel like mm-hmm. a second class citizen.
2: And book fairs as well. Yes, that was book a big fairs. that was a big thing in elementary school to be able to go to the book fair and pick out your favorite books. Uh, now Junie B Jones was a big one for me, uh, but I could never afford it so I would just browse and I would see people picking or other kids picking up, you know, bookmarks, books, a bunch of different you know, items that were available in the in the book fair and then never being able to, to pick something up. But I do remember one time it fell around tax time. And so my mom got a refund and she gave me some money to go to book fair and I bought... So this was two separate uh, times when she gave me money for the book fair and I bought a diary each time so I could write down my account of, you know, what was going on in my childhood. And I still have those diaries till this day. And some of the diaries... A lot of the entries uh, talk about me accompanying my mom to churches and nonprofits and asking for money for to turn the lights on. so it was it's pretty sad to look back and, and read it and I didn't it's you know I, I thank you, Robin, for having me on this show because um, and telling the story because I didn't think there was anything unique about my story. I thought it was just something you know just part of life, and that we fell on the wrong side of life and I didn't you know I, a, a lot of people who saw the article. We're probably shocked to see that I've, you know, been homeless, that I was in poverty uh, because I don't talk about it too much. Uh, but I have been talking about it more lately because I feel that uh, it's important to tell the story and, and to, um, you know, talk about the barriers that exist out there for people, um, you know, to not uh, be able to grow and, you know, uplift themselves from poverty.
0: To the extent you were ever able to focus on your studies as as the ultimate transport out of this life, as the as the foot in the door, when did it first occur to you that you could, if you if you focus like a laser on school, and the path ahead, that there could be a way out?
2: I think when my mom started drilling it into us at a young age, that's when I started um, realizing that it was very important because it was one of the things she talked about all the time. She, you know, didn't get a chance to go to college, so I was the first generation to get a college education. And so once she told me that, and then I would see it on TV, and and when I was in school with the other kids, their parents had college educations, and they were doing well. So I always thought, hey, maybe I could do the same thing. So I definitely think it was around that point where I thought it was extremely important to hone in on my studies and, uh, you know, try to get to college. But it was hard when when you're the only one who's had any experience in trying to get to college so you don't have any guidance. And so with the FAFSA, with trying— financial aid
0: application.
2: Yep, yep, and and with trying to select colleges, not knowing what to look for, and then even as simple as the classes that you're currently in uh, in high school, there was nobody to look over my homework. So it was just kind of a gamble. I I was hoping that my homework was correct by the time I went to school um, because it becomes difficult for teachers to give, um, you know, attention to each and every child in their classroom. So I understood that, uh, and I understood that it was up to me to, you know, make my own success or, you know, pave my own path.
0: Full disclosure, listening to Adele McClure, she's traversed a life of poverty, um, uh, having to know this at a very young age and broke out about a decade ago, become a student body president, correct, at Virginia correct. Commonwealth mm-hmm. University. I mean, to, to have conventional teenage angst is one thing <laughs> and peer pressure and all that jazz. I mean, we remember those awkward, miserable years. I mean, I prefer to I prefer to repress <laughs> them myself. But just to give everybody an idea here, after middle school, your mother and your her then fiance split up. And so your mom, your younger brother, and you moved into a one-bedroom apartment in Alexandria, Virginia. Your mother couldn't afford the rent for long, so you were eventually evicted. That's middle school. You then moved in with family in Georgia, but after a disagreement, your mother was kicked out. The family offered for you and your brother to stay, but you went with your mother. That night, you sat out on the curb until a neighbor offered to let you sleep on their floor. You slept on their floor for a few nights until your mother's ex fiance drove from Virginia to pick you up and... ...and let you stay with him in his one-bedroom apartment. However, shortly after, he kicked you all out of the apartment... After that, you checked into a bad, cheap local hotel room. We stayed there, you said, for several months. After that, we moved into transitional housing, which turned into permanent housing. While you lived at the hotel, you lied to your classmates in school about where you really lived because you were embarrassed. Your mother applied for Section 8 housing voucher during your freshman year of high school in Virginia. The wait list was long. Even in spite of all this volatility, you were focused on in-state tuition in Virginia and getting into Virginia. How in the world did you possibly (laughs) focus on this? I mean, other people would have dropped out.
2: I don't know. I I just knew that I wouldn't be able to afford out of state tuition. So I was just focused on trying to get to college because I didn't want to live the life that we were currently living and she she drilled that into me as well. And in the middle of all this, so my big brother was incarcerated, so we were uh, we took in his two children. So we had my toddler niece and nephew that I would watch all the time when I had those three jobs during high school. And so there was so much going on and uh I don't feel that I had the normal high school experience, and I I can't tell you what the normal high school experience is. It's pretty ratchet, right? <laughs> but I didn't have that. It's ratchet. <laughs> I didn't have that ratchet experience. Maybe maybe one or two days, but you know, not not over the course of four years. But I do remember someone telling me that you know I get to go to school. If I if I went to a school in Virginia, I would pay way less tuition than people coming from out of state. And uh, I thought about. I thought as far ahead uh, to student loans <laughs> as possible. And I I think I graduated, and I say I think because of the interest uh, on it, but I graduated with uh, less than $15,000 in debt. And um, that was because of a series of scholarships and uh, grants. and
0: Others can say, I'm just going to drop out because I need to make money right now, if, even if I take a cashier's job, even if I work – as a waitress or as a cook or something else. That was never a valid option for you in your mother's eyes?
2: Um, well, she knew that I could do both. She knew that in the short term I could take up a cashier's job, which I did, and uh, that I could take up other odd jobs and make money on the side to help her pay rent. And my first paycheck actually went to rent, um, the entire paycheck. So most people, when they work their first job, you know, they'll sometimes they'll pay you three weeks later instead of two weeks on that first paycheck. Imagine working all those hours for three weeks and then that entire paycheck having to go to the rent.
0: Having to go to help your mom with rent?
2: Yep, having to go to help my mom with rent. But how rent. did you feel about that? <laughs> I was devastated. So uh, I called my big sister. So my big brother and my big sister at the time uh, didn't live with us. And I called my big sister crying. And, you know, she just said that, uh, I mean, that was that was how it was. Otherwise, we would be evicted again. And so um, I just had to kind of snap back into reality and and realize that it was something that I had to do in the short term. But in the long term, I kept thinking ahead that if I don't do something about this situation, if I don't go and get an education and break out of this cycle of poverty, I'm going to be stuck in it and I'm going to continue to work these short-term jobs. And that's not the case for everyone. I was afforded the opportunity by being in a great area with uh, amazing opportunities and a great school system. Even though I was in a poor neighborhood, I was uh, zoned to be in a a great school. Uh, So I feel like that also contributed to um, my current success. You know, a lot of people don't have that opportunity, and I, I was aware of that at that age.
0: That was a flashback to my 2018 talk with Adele McClure, Executive Director of the Virginia Black Caucus and candidate for the House of Delegates. Catch the entire episode on your favorite podcatcher. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly and multimedia producer Evan Hunter. We podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at linkfoiltyradio.com. You can subscribe, rate, and recommend us. And hello to our broadcast listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can message me to run full disclosure on your air. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week.